Real growth doesn't come easy, and it doesn't come cheap. Uh, my girls, 10, 7, and 4, are learning new sports and trying out new hobbies. Uh, we've done a bunch of things. We've done tennis. We've done dance, uh, drama. We've done swimming. We've done soccer and piano and all these things. We're just kind of waiting for something to stick, something that they're really passionate about. So far, we know that they love Minecraft. So if you can make money playing Minecraft, I'm going to retire early. Um, my, my girls are at an age, though, where they're trying out all these different things. And it's interesting because I've learned is one consistency, at least with my children, is that they love the games, but they don't love the practices. Like when it came to dance, they love the recitals because it's so exciting to be on stage and people are watching you and the lights are on you and people are applauding you and you get flowers and you go out for ice cream afterwards. And so they love that. But like the monotonous, mundane, over and over practicing, they're not so, uh, they're not as excited about. I remember one time driving and talking to Lilia about this, my oldest, and Lilia asked me a question about it. She goes, I just doesn't seem, do you think it's fair? Do you think it's fair that we have to practice to get good at things? This is what she's asking me. Do you think it's fair that we have, she's like, to me, it doesn't seem fair. Why can't we just be great at stuff? I sort of agree with her. It would be nice. It would be nice. But in real life, we don't grow, we don't learn, we don't really improve apart from facing challenges and obstacles and difficulties. Real growth doesn't come easy, and real growth doesn't come cheap. You know, since 2011, the University of Arizona has owned and run this controlled miniature version of our planet's. And they have this thing in order to study how our planet's systems work, and it's called Biosphere 2. And one of the primary things that they've learned by trying to understand our planet and our planet's systems is that what's currently the most uh, significant challenge for the biosphere, what makes it not sustainable, is the absence of wind. And they explain it this way. They say, when plants and trees grow in the wild, there's the wind, right? And the wind constantly keeps plants and trees moving. And this causes a stress in the load-bearing structure of the tree. So the tree is always getting moved by the wind, and it's causing the stress. But to compensate, the tree manages to grow something that's called stress wood or reaction wood, which in the end makes the tree stronger so that it can survive and it can grow even more. And what they're learning in Biosphere 2 is because there's not the obstacle, the challenge, the struggle of wind, there's a lack of growth. And it's the same thing in our own lives. Because there's a lot, when there's a lack of struggle, we don't grow. And it's in the most difficult moments in our lives that we learn the most that we grow the most, and that we change the most. So this morning, we're in week two of our, week, our four-week series where we're going through the Old Testament story of Jonah. At the end of chapter one, Jonah, this runaway rebellious prophet, he's thrown overboard into a stormy sea. He hits the waters, the storm ceases, he begins to sink, and God sends a great fish to swallow him. Now, it's obvious, right? This is not a great moment for Jonah. This is, this is not going well for him. This is arguably the worst day of his life. And all of chapter 2, which is what we're going to look at uh, this morning, is spent in the belly of the great fish. And here's the questions we want to ask ourselves this morning. What did Jonah notice while he was sitting there? What did he learn on the worst day of his life? And what can we notice and what can we learn in those moments in our lives? And we're going to talk about three things that Jonah learned. And the first thing is this. 
Jonah learned or was reminded of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Let me read to you from Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is like uh, hell, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pits, O Lord, my God. Jonah here is praying a prayer of thanksgiving, and he's actually remembering a prayer that he prayed earlier. We don't have it except that it's recorded here. He's actually, this is his second prayer. So he prays this prayer inside the belly of the fish, but at the beginning of this prayer, he's remembering the prayer he prayed when he was just sinking in the sea. And he says, you, uh, I, I was sinking and I was in distress and I called out to you. And in this prayer, we see that Jonah is reflecting, he is remembering, he is being reminded that God, our God, is sovereign. And I want to really look at just a few words in verse 3 where he says to God, he says, for you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the deep. Now, at this point, we might say, Jonah, did you hit your head? Have you forgotten what really happened? Is this just denial? Is this just blame shifting? He's saying, God, you threw me into the sea? Well, hold on. First off, why was Jonah even on that boat? Because he was rebelling. God said, take this message to the people in Nineveh. And Jonah said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going the other direction. So Jonah put himself on that boat first. Secondly, why was he thrown off the boat? Do you remember the story last week Jason talked about? He suggested it himself. He said to the sailors, they weren't going to do it. He said to them, the only way to stop the storm is you got to throw me off this boat. And so they didn't even want to do it. They tried to figure out a different way. But so he was the reason why it even happened. And then thirdly, who actually threw him off the boat? It was the sailors. And then Jonah in his prayer says, God, you cast me into the deep. What's happening here? Well, Jonah is realizing something that we all need to understand is that the, the sailors were the agents of what happened, but God is the actor. God is sovereign. God is reigning and ruling over all things. All circumstances of our lives, we can see God at work in it. Now, there's a lot of discussion and debate and even division over this issue of the sovereignty of God. And maybe you've wrestled with this before. You've thought, well, how much control does God actually have? Anybody ever think about this? Like, if I can't make a choice, what's the point here? If God knows everything I'm going to do, then why pray? Don't, anybody else struggle with this tension sometimes of, are we just puppets? Does God cause evil? Does he allow evil? And sometimes what we do is we pit the sovereignty of God, which is God's reign and rule and his choosing and his power. We pit the sovereignty of God against the responsibility of humankind. And we say it's either or. Either he's completely responsible because he's completely sovereign, or he's not completely sovereign and we're responsible. And I want to try and help you with that this morning briefly by saying you don't need to make that decision. You don't actually have to pit those things against each other. I found this uh, paragraph written by two guys named Jerry Walls 
and Joseph Dongle. I want to ask you to lean in and listen, because this was very, very helpful for me on this conversation of the sovereignty of God. And they say this, God is no less sovereign in a world where he chooses to grant his creatures free will than he is in a world where he determines everything. Sovereignty cannot be equated with meticulous control. Here's what they're saying. The sovereignty of God is not synonymous with he controls every little thing. They're not the exact same thing. Rather, here's what sovereignty actually is. Listen, sovereignty is the freedom to choose as one will in order to accomplish one's purposes. So God is sovereign, which means he gets to make the choices to accomplish his purpose. However, if God chose to create people who are free and to accomplish his purposes through their undetermined choices, it was his sovereign right to do so. Less control is not the same as less sovereignty if God chose to have less control. A perfectly good and wise God will exercise just the amount of control appropriate for the sort of world he chooses to create. So what does, that all, that, what does all that mean? It means this. Our freedom to choose, the fact that as humans, you have choices, right? You chose what to eat for breakfast this morning. God didn't choose that for you. You chose what to wear to church this morning. God didn't make that choice for you. You're choosing to listen now, to tune out now, to think about lunch, to think about whatever. That's, that's your choice to make. But our freedom to choose does not make God less sovereign because our ability to choose was first his choice. Does that make sense? God made a choice to give us the freedom to choose. So he, he retains all of his sovereignty in giving us that choice. And the fact that we do have choice and we bear the responsibility of our choices does not in any way at any moment make God less sovereign or even less in control. Our freedom to choose does not tie God's hands. He's bigger than us. It does not limit his work. Why? Because he can redeem, restore, and repurpose everything and anything. He never sits back and goes, ah, what am I going to do now? Back to the drawing board. He's never said that phrase. I never said it either until right now, but he's never said it. Back to the drawing board. It is human responsibility and, together, the mystery, human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. So when we talk about human responsibility, this is what it, this is what it means. You bear the weight of your decisions. So we can't blame God later in life for certain health conditions if we made decisions over and over and over to put ourselves in that place. We can't say, God, how dare you let this happen to me? Yes, I ate at McDonald's every day for 45 years, but how dare you let me get heart disease, right? We, we, we can't shake our fist in God's face because there's human responsibility. So we bear the weight of our choices. Other people bear the weight of your choices. And here's the news no one likes. You bear the weight sometimes of other people's choices. We can't avoid each other's choices. It's like a ripple effect. And even the earth and nature and creation bears the weight of the choices that humankind makes. Yet... Here's the wonderful mystery. In the midst of all of that, God still reigns and God still rules. He's still over all. His plans have not been thwarted. His, his hands are not tied. He's not sitting there going, what am I going to do next? He's not, he's not nervous. He's not, he's not anxious. He's not worried. Why? Because he's sovereign. God is always at work for two things. Number one, he's always at work for his glory. And number two, he's always working for our good. He is. He's always at work for his glory and for our good. Here's the problem. The definition of the word good, it's based on perspective, right? What might be good to you, maybe it doesn't seem so good to me. Let me give you an example. Imagine you go and you find a dog that needs to be rescued. And you rescue this dog out of a terrible situation. And you bring this dog into your home where you want to love this dog and you want to care for this dog. So what do you do? 
You'd bring the dog to the vet to get looked at, to get shots. You, you trim the dog's nails. You, you, you cut the dog's hair. You wash the dog. You maybe send the dog to obedience school. Now, I know some dogs maybe are more passive when that stuff happens than others, but a lot of dogs don't like anything I just described. From their perspective, there's nothing good about it. They don't want their nails clipped. They don't want to have their hair cut or their fur trimmed. They don't want to get washed. They certainly don't want to get shots. And from their limited perspective, they're looking at you going, how could you cause all of this to happen in my life? You must not love me. You must have bad plans for me. But it's the, it's the difference in perspective. Now, I know we would like to think that our perspective versus a dog's perspective is a vaster gap than our perspective and God's perspective, but it's not. It really isn't. God's perspective, the God who sees all, who sees the beginning from the end, he sees everything. So there will be things that he brings into our lives sometimes, and we're like that dog getting our nails clipped, and we're like, I don't like it. It can't possibly be good. And God's saying, there's a way it's for your good. There's a way it's for your good. Now, God in his sovereignty is working in all situations. So what does this mean? What does this mean for you and me? In this prayer, and there's a lot of debate amongst biblical scholars as to whether this was a prayer Jonah prayed or it was a hymn that was written that was attributed to Jonah. It doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it expresses Jonah's heart. But he talks about things like the seas and floods and waves and waters. And in the context of the story of Jonah, of course, it means he's actually sinking in the sea. But for you and me, it means something else. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, whenever you saw things like sea and flood and waves and waters, it always represented the unknown of life, the dangers of life, the uncertainties of life. And so this prayer applies to us too. We're not sinking in literal water. There aren't literal waves washing over us. But how many of you at different times in your life, you've had to encounter unknowns, uncertainties, difficulties, things that seem to be washing over you. So what we have here is a comparison between the circumstances of our lives, the difficulties of our lives with the plans and the purposes of a sovereign God. So Jonah said, the waters have closed in, the deep is surrounding me, the weeds have wrapped around my head, he's saying, the algae's wrapped around my head, the land whose bars closed upon me forever in their sort of way of thinking, they thought that Sheol, which was like the underworld, that there were bars that literally would close over you once you were in there, so you couldn't get out. And that's how Jonah felt. He felt like he was in hell. He felt like he was dying, and he felt like there was no way out. And then he says this, yet you, God, you brought me up. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. And here's what this means to us this morning. You may look back over the course of your life, or you may look at where you are right now in your life and say, these circumstances and these difficulties and these mistakes and these failures and these tragedies and these traumas in my life, they have had plans for me. Maybe you might say this, my past failures are closing in on me. My addictions and my hangups, they surround me. My fears and my anxieties, they wrap around my head. My grief and my pain closed upon me forever. But if Jonah's prayer is true, this is what it means. None of those things have the final say in your life. None of those things get to determine the course of your life. None of those things may have plans for you. There may be people in your lives that had plans for you and they weren't good plans. There may be circumstances in your life that felt like it was going to determine the rest of your life. But according to this, God can bring up your life from any pit. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he sees us. Because he sends what we need. And because he saves See, think about the story so far. He sees sees Jonah, and he sends a message to him. And then he sees Jonah running, and he sends a storm to keep him from running. And then he sees Jonah sinking, and he sends a fish. 
This is the God who sees. This is the God who sends. This is the God who saves. So what does all of this mean is before we go to our second point? Listen very carefully. God is more sovereign over your life than your worries and your anxieties and your fears tend to believe. God is more sovereign over your life than your fears, your worries, the things that keep you up at night, the things that make your heart race, than your worries tend to believe. But also, on the other side, same time, you are more responsible for your life than your excuses want to believe. You are more responsible for your own life than your, the excuses that you make want you to believe. So it's both. Let me say it together. God is more sovereign over your life than your worries tend to believe but you are more responsible for your life than your excuses want to believe. It's both. Sovereignty of God, the responsibility, and in these dark moments, on the worst day of our lives, if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, where do we turn? If we don't believe that God is working, if we don't believe that he's true, if we don't believe there's a bigger plan, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we comfort ourselves? And that brings us to our second point. The second thing that we should learn on the worst day of our lives that Jonah learns here is not just the sovereignty of God, but secondly, the worthlessness of idols. The worthlessness of idols. Look at the next couple verses of Jonah's prayer, verses seven and eight. He says this. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here's the key verse, verse 8. Those who pay regard, those who pay attention, those who put their trust and hope in vain, useless, worthless idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. And we look at Jonah, and we have to ask ourselves this question. Where do we turn on the worst day of our lives? On the worst day of our lives, where do we turn? Where do we look? Real, where is really our hope? And idols are things that we turn to that can't actually do anything for us. These are vain idols. These are false gods. These are false hopes. These are things that we look to for hope, things that we look to for meaning, things that we look to for salvation, and there's no hope found in them. And when you turn to them, they won't do for you what you expect them to do. One of the commentators talking about verse 8, says this. Jonah is trying to teach something to the people of God. He's trying to teach something to us this morning. Here's what he's trying to say. Let me make clear, something very clear to everyone who's listening. When I was sinking in the sea, there was nothing that wood, stone, gold, or silver could have done. All the things we carve out of trees or heat up in pots on a great fire and then bow down to worship them, They did not have any significance or salvation for me when I neared the end of my life at the bottom of that sea. The only thing that mattered in my ordeal, the only thing that matters on the worst day in your life was the Lord, who is known for being merciful. We see in this story the worthlessness of idols. First, we see the worthlessness of irreligious idols. These sailors that were on the boat when the storm came, what did they do when the storm came? They began to all pray out to their other gods all call out to their idols. But here's the thing about idols that are so worthless about them. They can't save you on your worst day. The Bible talks about idols being things that have eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear. They can't hear, mouths but they can't speak. They can't move. They can't do anything for you. And so they're worthless. We put our hope in these things and they can't actually save us or deliver us. Now, Jonah has his own idols, and in two weeks, we're going to really look at that, but Jonah has these religious idols, these respectable idols. He's self-righteous. Jonah, when he gets on that ship, if there's one thing he's sure, he knows he's better than those sailors. They're heathens. 
They're not Israelites. They're wicked. He has nothing in common with them. But the whole twist in the story is he has everything in common with these people. He has idols in his house, in his life too. And here's the other thing about the worthlessness of idols. They will blind you to your true condition and they will bring the absolute worst out of you when you put your hope and trust in lesser things. Most mornings I drive my girls to school and uh, recently I was driving my Lily and Caroline to school and I was sitting up front and we like to listen to a little music as we go and so I had a little music going, they're behind me and all of a sudden I hear Lily go, Daddy, uh, do you, can you give me a piece of paper for my homework? And so I was like, what? What did, she, what did you just say? She goes, I need a piece of paper uh, for my homework. And so now I'm kind of irritated because I'm thinking, we, last night we asked if your homework was done. Like, you shouldn't be doing your homework on the way to school. You know, last night when you spent, you know, you know when you were building New World Minecraft, you could have been doing your homework. And uh, so now I'm kind of irritated. I'm like, Lilia, are you serious? Like, you need paper to do your homework right now? And now I turn the music off. That's serious, right? That's serious, Dad. Music's off. And she says, no, I didn't say homework. I said bookmark. I need a piece of paper. I'm reading a book. I need a piece of paper for a bookmark. And I said, oh, all right, yeah, sure. I thought you said homework. And then she laughs at me, the nerve. She laughs at me and says, why would you have thought I said homework? Okay, so now a normal human being in that moment would just go, I guess I misheard, music's going, no big deal. Not me. I go into this like teaching moment, this sort of tirade slash teaching where I said, Lilia, hold on, because she laughed at me. Hold on. I want you to think about those two words for a second. Think about homework. Think about bookmark. And I want you to tell me everything they have in common with each other. And she goes, she's like, um, I don't know, school? Or she like, she can't understand what I'm trying to say. I'm like, no, 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 Lilia. The way those words are structured, the way they sound, I want you to understand how similar they actually are. Now tell me something that's similar about them. And finally realize they both end with the k. So homework, book, mark. They both have two syllables. There's an O in the first syllable. So... I'm going through this whole thing, and as soon as I'm done, and she's like, okay, I, I, yeah, those, I can see why you, why you thought I said, as soon as I, I, you know how big I felt? I felt like, and, and I thought in that moment, what in the world is wrong with your heart? Like, what is so wrong with you that you had to prove yourself to your 10-year-old? What did you gain? What did you get out of it? How do you feel now? How do you think she feels now? Do you feel like a big winner? Do you feel like a smart guy? Because you just proved it. And I, you're kind of laughing at me and, and probably thinking less of me right now. But, but hopefully, you're not just doing that. Hopefully, you're thinking through your own life and thinking of a few moments where you all of a sudden find yourself reacting in a way, and later you go, why did I react that way? That was kind of out of proportion to what was happening. Why does that bother me so much? Why am I still thinking about what that person said to me two weeks ago? Why can't I just have a normal relationship with that person? We all have these things. So what was happening in that moment? In that moment, I, I, one of my idols, one of the things I look to for value and meaning is, is respect. And I felt disrespected by my own daughter. 
and being a good communicator. And I felt like she, not only was she disrespecting me, but she was saying that my communication skills weren't very good. And so now, because my idol is under attack, I have to go to the defense of my idol because it's my functional savior, it's my God, I love it, I worship it, I have to protect it, and now I find myself saying things to my daughter that are just like Looney Tunes. Like in hindsight, I thought, what? that was so embarrassing, what's wrong with me? These are what idols do to us. They bring the worst out in us. And we need to pay attention in those moments. It's not enough just to say, I lost my cool. I'll try not to lose my cool next time. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us answer this question. Where was I turning in that moment for hope, trust, identity, meaning, value, worth? What was so threatened in that moment that I had to lose my temper? What's so threatened that I have to be anxious about this situation and this moment? Jonah here, he so trusts in his own sense of right and wrong that he says, God, God, you say it's right for them to hear the gospel. I say it's wrong. That's how much Jonah trusts in the idol of his ability to distinguish between what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Jonah has an idol of justice. He thinks, I know what's just and I know what's not just. And it's not just for them to hear the gospel. What's just for them is to be destroyed because they're pagans, they're heathens, and they're our enemies. So he has this idol in his heart. Jonah has all these things. He would rather run from God than deliver his message. And then it gets even worse because think about it. All he had to do on that boat to get that storm to stop was he needed to repent. That's all he needed to do. He needed to repent in front of those sailors and say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against Yahweh. And I'm going to, as soon as I get the next chance, I'm going to go. I'm going to deliver the message. But listen, Jonah would rather die than repent in front of those heathens because he had an idol of self-righteousness. I'm never going to repent in front of these guys. They're worse than me. They're the ones who should be repenting. Never me. Just throw me off. I'd rather die. That might seem extreme, but that's what idols do. If you have an idol of respect, you'd rather die than be humiliated in front of people that mean something to you. If you have an idol of success, you'd rather die than be seen as a loser. If you have the idol of being right, you'd rather die than be proven wrong over and over and over again. If you have the idol of control, you'd rather die than not have your future and your well-being and the well-being of your family in your own hands. That kills you that you can't control that. If you have an idol of approval, you'd rather die than be rejected. And if you have the idol of pleasure, then you'd rather die than not be able to escape and enjoy with whatever, whenever, however. And we all carry this unavoidable need to prove ourselves. And the arena of life in which we look to do so is so often where our idols are found. And here's the truth. We can't help ourselves. We really can't. I was listening to a podcast this past week by an author uh, named Carol Tavers. She was the co-author of a, a book called Mistakes Were Made, parentheses, but not by me. Subtitled, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. And she's talking about, she was, she was being interviewed on this podcast called Something You Should Know. And she's talking about why people don't own up to their mistakes. They just refuse to own up to their own mistakes. And the irony was, in the middle of the interview, she says something, and the other guy misunderstands what she says. Actually, I don't think she said it very well, and he says back to her, so you're saying this? And she said this, exact quote. Let me make sure I get it right. She said this, oh, I'm so sorry that you misunderstood me. And I thought, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, she literally wrote the book on people not owning up to their own mistakes. (laughs) And while she's talking about the book, she's not owning up at all her own mistakes. She said it in a way, it was like, I'm so, you ever have somebody apologize to you that way? I'm so sorry that you're so sensitive. I'm so sorry that you took that the wrong way. They're not sorry. They're not sorry. 
And so we have this tendency, and as we, even when we know our problems, even if you're the expert on it, we can't fix it. Why? Because idols are just sort of this default mode in the human heart where we're always looking for something to give us value and worth. And Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake the hope of steadfast love. What does that word steadfast love mean? It's supposed to take the Israelites' minds and hearts back to the covenant-keeping God. who said, I'm going to keep this covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. So here's what you do with your idols. You, you hold them up against this covenant-keeping God, and you see their worthlessness. Here's the gift. This is, this, is, this is hard to believe, but the worst days in our lives, the hardest days, the darkest days in our lives can actually be a gift, and here's why. I'm not saying they're easy. I've had plenty, but they can be a gift, and here's why. Because they actually have the power to expose what you really love. They have the power to expose your true trust. They have the power to expose your idols. And they also have the power to empty you of them. Because once you see that they're not enough and they can't get you out, you'll see how worthless they are. Tim Keller says that when life is going smoothly and when our truest heart treasures seem safe, it doesn't occur to us to pray. We're prayerless people when life is going great because our true treasures are safe and secure. But as soon as your true heart treasure isn't safe and secure, you will find yourself on your knees. We'll find ourselves praying. This is where Jonah is in chapter two. Last point this morning. The sovereignty of God, the worthlessness of idols, and lastly, the response of the rescued. The response of the rescued. Verse nine, Jonah says, but I will, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Now Jonah's making promises. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, hold up right there for a second. Jonah 2.9, some, some biblical scholars say that that is the central verse of all of Scripture. That phrase, when Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That that is, like, crucial in our understanding of Scripture. And in verse 10, Jonah 2 ends, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, let me close. and. All of us make what are called value decisions. In fact, every decision you make is based on what you value. Let me give you an example. You go to a restaurant and you open up the menu. Um, unfortunately, nowadays, they put calories in the menu. That's like such a, <laughs> like such, such a bummer, such a bummer. Uh, I know it's supposed to be helpful, but mostly, it's, it's mostly it makes me anxious and upset. Um, but, you know, they, they put the calories there. So you're making a decision. Do I want this 1,400-calorie burger and fries or do I want this $700 kale, $700, 700-calorie kale salad, right? And you're thinking, it's, this is a value-driven decision. What do you value more? Do you value your health? Or do you value not eating the same food that rabbits eat? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you value more? And so, for me, a lot of times, I value, obviously, the good meal. So I'm like, ah, oh, just, you know, I can't, oh, I don't want to eat that. I'm going to... We're always making value-based decisions. Now, you, your values determine how you spend your free time, how you treat other people, how you are with your family, how you spend your money. Your money is spent based on what you value. Here's a question I want to close with this morning. It's this. How much do you value your salvation? How much do you value that God brought your life up from the pit, that he rescued you? You want to know how much you value it? It's pretty simple. Look at your life. Look at how you live. Look at how you spend your time. Look at how you use your words. Look at how you use your money. 
Those are all indicators of how much we really value our salvation. And Jonah has this overwhelming awareness that salvation is from the Lord. So I will pay the vows I've made. This is his response. And this is the response of the rescued. Because you rescued me, I will serve you and live for you. In other words, the only reasonable response of the rescued is to pay what we vow. I remember in the weeks and the months following the attacks on the towers in New York City at 9-11, reading interviews with people who were in the tower and survived. And I remember one person in particular said this in the interview. They said, when you know you should be dead, it changes how you live. When you know you should be dead, it changes how you live. That is the testimony of every Christian anywhere. I should be dead in my sin. I should be dead to God, but I'm alive. Why? Because I'm so great? No, because God's so great. Because he sovereignly saved you. Because he rescued you. Because he's rescuing your heart from the worthlessness of the idols that you love and crave and treasure more. And so, but here's the problem. When we say, God, I'm gonna pay my vows, here's the problem, you know it. We're terrible at it. We're terrible at keeping our promises, and we're terrible at paying the price. We can't pay the price. I was listening to an interview yesterday. David Letterman, who has a new show, was interviewing George Clooney. George Clooney, who grew up, uh, a famous actor, grew up in a Catholic uh, upbringing. He said he was talking about the guilt that he grew up with and the, the, the need he felt to pay for his own sin. He talked about one saint that he read about one time who put a little pebble in her shoe. And, call, and she would walk all over the place, and that was how she would pay penance for her sin. By So what he would do, this is, this is a true story, George Clooney, when he was young, and he didn't want to confess all his sins to his priest anymore because he grew up in a small town in Kentucky, and he's like, the priest knows my name, or knows the sound of my voice by now. He's going to know my sins. I don't, want to, I don't want to confess all my sins. I'll convince, confess some of, my, some of my sins, but here's what I'm going to do to deal with the rest of my sins. He would put lots of stones in his shoes, and he would jump off the top bunk of his bed onto the ground to punish himself to try to pay the price for his own sin. And that might seem ridiculous, and if you didn't grow up Catholic, that may not make any sense to you, but a lot of us spend our lives trying to pay for our sins in other ways, trying to prove ourselves, trying to make ourselves good enough. And when Jonah says, I will pay what I have vowed, here's what our hearts are supposed to hear. Jonah wasn't gonna do it. In fact, we're gonna get there. Chapter three, chapter four, he kind of does it, but he doesn't do it for the right reasons. He doesn't do it with the right heart. Jonah doesn't follow through. So what hope do you and I have? And I want to jump us to the New Testament because Jesus talked about Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus saying something about the story of Jonah is going to resonate through my life and you're going to see it. In verse 40, he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm the greater Jonah. Yet Jonah went into the sea for three days and three nights. But I'm going to go right into hell. I'm going to go right into the wrath of God for three days and three nights. Because you can't pay what you vow. You can't keep your promises. But Jesus kept your promises for you. And because Jesus kept your promise for you, here's what it means. The Father can keep his promise to you, that he'll be his, your God and you'll be his people. Jonah was under God's wrath because he was a rebel, but Jesus went under God's wrath because I'm a rebel, because you're a rebel, because we are rebels. We can't pay our vow, but Jesus paid it for us. It's all a part of God's sovereign plan. It's all because of our insatiable appetite for worthless things. 
but it's also that the rescue can respond like Jonah did. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and I will pay what I have vowed. Let's bow our heads together this morning.